Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Curtis Kelly, professor of English at Kansai University. Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for coming back on Lost oh, in Citations. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm really enjoying your, your podcast and congratulations on your one year anniversary rather yes. recently. Yes, and also uh, a colleague of yours, Robert Murphy, has joined us as a as a contributing interviewer, which is it's good in some ways because the content on the website is improved. It's bad in other ways because his interviews are better than mine. But, <laughs> oh well, <laughs> I, I've already listened to one. I don't think it's been published yet with uh, Mary Helen. Imordino Yang. Oh, I'm glad. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you were able to listen to that because I actually wanted to send that to you before we recorded, but it uh -huh. just kind of slipped my mind. Yeah, that's going to, by the time this episode with you comes out, her episode is coming out. And I have also had a chance to listen to it. And boy, oh boy, is that a yeah, good episode. It, it's a little bit dense in the beginning, but everybody that listened to it, stick till the end because she's going to throw some barbs into our uh, understanding of education. It's good. You must be thrilled about Robert kind of joining our team because you, yeah. you even uh, mentioned him in some of our email correspondence about how he was kind of one of uh, the people on the forefront of spreading the mind brain education in yes. Japan and, and throughout yeah. East Asia. Yeah, he, he's really got things moving here in Japan. And uh, he's also a really good interviewer. Mm. I've seen him take other people's videos and kind of narrate them he's kind of really good at that i think he has some radio experience that helps but yeah he did a really good job with the mary helen interview too did you listen and to I, his I twisted his arm to make him send it to me so i could listen to it as soon as possible and i'm glad i did did you listen to his interview with tracy that's another one of the people that you know um i can't remember because i met her in a workshop and i've listened watched so many of her videos recently but if not, it's still on my list. I think I, I think I did though. Cool. Um, yeah. Well, it's cool to have talented people like uh, Dr. Murphy involved, and I, I I've been kind of begging you to get involved as well. Uh, uh, the Here whole idea, the whole idea is yes, as as a guest, I of course I I would always love to talk to you, but <clears throat> my goal moving forward through the next year and then the future years is kind of make this an open platform where people oh. can discuss ideas with each other, where I'm not the arbiter of taste. So that's my ultimate goal. I mean, we've had a few contributing interviewers already, maybe like three or four. But my, my goal has always been to sort of open this up where the ultimate thing would be someone talking to someone that I don't know and I learn something about it. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't know. If you ever are interested in becoming an interviewer as well, that would be cool. I know you said you don't like to listen back to your own. Did you ever listen to your episode, Citation 9? Uh, a little bit, as much as I could stand it. <laughs> oh, so you did. You did You did dabble. Yes, a little bit. But I, I don't consider myself a great ad-lib speaker, but um, I will take you up on that offer. And I might actually set up an interview and get somebody else to ask the questions for me. <laughs> somebody's more fluent than i am well that would that would be great just uh put that in the back of your mind thank you i appreciate that all right so today's article is something that you have written in um the mind brain ed think tanks and the name of the article is s to s so student to student the connected classroom i guess before we get into the article for people that don't know, can you give a little bit of a background on the think tanks and the SIG? Um, in JALT, the Japan Association of Language Teachers, we have various special interest groups. And we made one just a few years ago for people interested in brain sciences, especially neuroscience. And so that's the Mind, Brain, and Education SIG. Mind, Brain, and Education, by the way, is a field that's trying to bring brain science into education. And there's this gap where things published in neuroscience are just too hard to understand for the average person. Mm. So there are people that are kind of translating those findings into things that might impact our classrooms. Mm. And that's what mind, brain, and education is. Connecting psychology, mind, 
brain neuroscience and education together. And the leaders in that are one, the two people that, uh, the two people that Robert interviewed and then some other people around America, Australia and other countries that are working on that, bringing science into teaching. Hmm. And so in the brain SIG, the mind brain education, so we call it the brain SIG, we started publishing a magazine, the mind brain ed think tanks in which every issue takes some aspect of teaching or the brain like uh, grammar, for example, or um, research problems, and we connect things that are related to our field to what science can tell us about it. Hmm. You know, things like the importance of sleep or how learning cannot happen without some kind of emotional valence involved and topics like that. And the magazine, we just started it out for the members of our SIGs. We had like 120 subscriptions at the beginning. But now we're pushing 2,000. Wow. And we have people in 70 countries that are subscribed and writing for us, too. So it's it's really kind of boomed, even though we don't advertise it per se. We just might mention it in cases like this. But if anybody's interested, please go to mindbrained.org. No spaces in there. Mindbrained.org. And look at our past issues and website. It's a free magazine, by the way. So feel free to subscribe. And I will put a link on the show notes as well that give the the archives. Yeah, thank you. In some of our – cor- oh, go ahead. You, you wrote you wrote for us, didn't you? I wrote an article about I think the start of the new year. Yeah. I, I think Jan- the January 1st edition. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I kind of wrote about the origins of lost incitations and – how it all started. That's right. Yes, and, yes, 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 yes. That's when we were kind of doing professional development, and uh, that story was good. Yeah, things that changed you during the pandemic. I remember. Yeah, absolutely. And I also enjoy reading it as well. I, I don't, I don't contribute as often as, as some other people. Like you said, I've only written one, but I do enjoy reading. And you brought up a good point in some of our correspondences, correspondence over the past couple months about you. At this stage in your career, you're actually leaning more towards this type of publication, as you mentioned, where maybe you you write you're writing something a little bit shorter that's going to reach two thousand people and going to give them, like you said, a condensed sort of practical format. Like you said, you use the term almost translating neuroscience to the educational masses. You're more. You you sort of said yeah, you're more comfortable yeah. doing that now where you're writing something shorter, more condensed, more applicable to a larger audience than writing something much more longer and more condensed to a smaller audience. And I, I really think I really think that makes sense. Well, there's so much good science out there that's available. We just need people to kind of translate it into something understandable and bring it to us. And so that's why there's so many blogs that are um, expanding now. They're, they're blogs, but they're really online magazines like Edutopia mm. and things like that. We need people to take the science, make us aware of it, but also show us how we can apply it to our classrooms to become better at what we do. Mm. And that's the kind of writing I want to do. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I I actually have an episode coming out. I think it's coming out before this episode where I, I just wrote a paper on my approach to reading and it's similar where it is, it is, you know, there's foundations in theory, but it's more condensed. It's more applicable. It's more practical. And I think when I was uh-huh. first starting my master's degree, I really struggled finding stuff like this. Mm-hmm. It, it, mm-hmm. And I think people kind of crave it. No, no matter if you're just starting out or, or, or later on, it is odd how the academia just sort of pushes people more towards books and journals um, yeah, and writing, there, there's less, yeah. there's less of this. So it's great that you guys are, are doing this. So, and it sounds like people are really responding to it. There's a, there's another factor involved, which is when I went to college, if you had to get any information, you had to go to the library hmm. and spend hours searching through books and making photocopies. But 
I don't know what, 20, 30 years ago when the internet came around, suddenly all the research is available to every, everybody every, everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. So the importance is kind of shifting now, although people don't realize it, from doing more research to make more information to making that information available to the field. And here's the shift I'm talking about, mm-hmm. though. Not just that, but design is becoming important. Mm. Now that we have the internet, the competition is only one click away. Mm. And to get people to read something, you have to entice them and interest them and tease them a little bit. And so people like Malcolm Gladwell that are really good at it, well, they become super popular writers and podcasters because they know how to draw people in. And that's that's a case of design. So it's no longer just knowledge of science or lots of technical knowledge and things like that. We also have to be good designers. I think you're probably experiencing that too, seeing as how your you know, interview styles and interviews are getting better and better every time. You're probably paying more attention to the design. Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> I always wondered why do you think I I mean as not even talking about academia just as a curious mind I'm always kind of wondering why why does it have to be like this and I find you know mm. my my background isn't in academia and I actually came to it quite late mm. and what's interesting is I mean not not to brag or anything but I would say I've had a a, a little bit of success and the only reason why is just cuz I'm doing things that are a little bit different yeah. And and I'm sort of asking why does it have to be that? Why does it have to be boring? Like why why does yeah. it have to be cl- yeah. why why does it just have to be like this? Like the re- other if you watch a TED talk, right? It's different than a presentation at a conference, right? Absolutely, yeah. If you go watch Steve Jobs showing off a new product, it's different than a presentation at a conference, right? If you if you see a blurb about an advertisement, it's different than an advertisement to an academic journal. So in, in some ways, it's just just having a curious mind and thinking, well, why, why does it have to be like this? And and some mm-hmm. and sometimes it just doesn't. People just kind of get used to it for for whatever reason. So, again, something like the the, the think tank, it, it makes sense. Like people yeah. people don't have time to to sit down and read a, a huge article on their lunch break, right? right. So you need you need to actually you have to put forth a lot of effort sometimes to to condense these academic uh, journals. And in some ways, you're almost saying like, look, I'll read the journal article for you. And then I'll give it to you in a way that you can understand it. Like you're, you're, you're writing to teachers, you know, not just academics. Yeah, that's what we're pushing for. But, you know, it's surprising, Jonathan, how many people in education and even English education are really poor writers. And it's because we've been trained to write this academic English that nobody else can understand except other researchers in our field. I mean, that's a big part of it. But we're not being taught the right way to write, I think. And I suppose that goes, that's true for giving presentations and interviews and other things too. We need to learn the right way to do it, a way that'll be meaningful to people and, you know, garner their interest. It is odd. There, there's sort of a cognitive dissonance because I think people... Like if you talk to an academic or you, you talk to someone and, and you talk about their interests and you see the things that they're interested in and you see the things that they're excited about, but yet they, there's almost this classification, oh, well, I can't do that because it's academia. It has to be boring. It has to be dry. Yeah, yeah. It has to be like highfalutin or so. I don't know. It's it's odd. It is a bit weird. Anyway, your article <laughs> is very easy to read and it's called uh, S2S, The Connected classroom so what was the impetus of writing this you just found that there was sort of a gap in the field of people highlighting student to student relationships in the classroom basically that's it you know i started getting interested in matthew lieberman and the social brain then Louis cozzolino and the tribal classroom mm. attachment theory things about how we're a group And our social brain is always dominant over other things. I mean, even Vitskovsky talked about how learning is a social experience, but that was always kind of vague to me. But then we decided to put an issue together on student-to-student relationships in the classroom and how that might affect learning. 
because we're coming up with some really interesting findings going through the, the research, like how a teacher's attitude can have a huge effect on the classroom and students making friends with each other and other things. And students, when they have friends, learn more, mm. study better. And there's all kinds of advantages. So I started doing some research on that for myself. And if you just take in, if you just type into Google student relationships, I'll, I just did that. So I'm going to tell you what came up. Student relationships. And here I'm trying to get information about what about student to student connections in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And the things that came up were number one, six strategies for building student relationships at Utopia, how to build better teacher student relationships. <laughs> building relationships with students, what brain science can tell us, how the teacher can connect to their students, what strong teacher, re- why strong teacher relationships leads to students something or other, improving students' relationships with teachers, why teacher-student relationships matter, Education Week, and it goes on and on. <laughs> the top 20 things that came out were all about the teacher mm. building relationships. There's very, very, very little research on how when students are connected to each other, how it affects their ability to learn, how it puts them into the right kind of brain state for learning. And so we're still using this ancient model of education where to learn English, you have to speak English all the time. You can't say hello in Japanese or something. Anyway, I won't get into that, but it's, it's an interesting topic. And, well, let me ask you. I'd like to interview you on this. You've seen classes where when students are connected, things go better, right? Mm -hmm. Why do you think that happens? Or what kind of advantages, when there's a connected classroom, what kind of things get better? I mean, I'm going to just be ripping off things I read in your paper, but I can pretend it's my idea. (laughs) I mean, mean, it's going to lower anxiety. Uh, because people are going to feel more support. Exactly. It's go- it's lowering to, anxiety. It's going to increase and that confidence. Lowering uh, anxiety and increasing confidence mean that people are more able to learn. Anxiety is like a block against learning. So, okay, keep going. Um, I, I'll, I'll add this. Uh, I read this great book. It's called How to Train Your Puppy. And it, have you have you have you read that book? No, no. It was written by these monks somewhere in Europe, and that's that's what they do to to make money. They they train German shepherds, mm. and and they wrote this great book. Um, and one of the, the 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 cool things about that book, which I really thought was a great metaphor, is their whole approach to training the dog how to get into the cage. Um, mm. And the, it's really important to train the dog to get into the cage because you have to take the dog on a trip. So the first thing they do is try to make it a welcoming atmosphere. The cage door is open. You have lots of uh, blankets in there. You have nice, you have a toy in there. You have, you have, I don't know, nice snacks in there. And gradually the dog will drift over to that area and just go there to sleep with Mm. the cage open. Mm. And that's the dog's happy place. And so when it's time to put the dog in the trunk or in a, in a plane, the dog's quite content and it's not being forced into the cage. Mm-hmm. And for mm-hmm. me, the metaphor is, is anything you can do to make a student comfortable in the classroom, we should absolutely do. Because if they're already feeling aversion to the classroom, I'm sure they have all this baggage from their whole life. Anything we can do where they just feel comfortable, they walk into the room, they feel anything we can do where they go where it's a comfortable, safe place. And of course, that's going to mean the people that are around them. If they're uncomfortable with the people around them, if they're nervous to talk to the people around them, there's just going to be more and more anxiety. So, I mean, I, I think we should always be looking for ways just for people to be comfortable as like, yeah, you know, yeah, keep, yeah. keep the door open, you know, get some music playing, like like anything. That's brilliant. And our students are much more sensitive than we often realize. I remember this experience I had. Uh, I used to teach in a women's college, and I'd ride the bus with the students from one part of Takatsuki to the train station. And I'd sometimes see a student say, hey, how are you going? How's your classes this year? Uh, do you like your classes? And they, the students would always give me this kind of weird answer. Mm. I like this class because sensei ga yasashi, the teacher is very kind. Mm-hmm. But I don't like this class because the teacher is scary. 
that wasn't kind of the kind of information I thought I'd get. I thought they'd say, oh, this is very useful for me, or I'm learning a lot. But it was always, it's a good class because the teacher's kind, or it's a bad class because the teacher's scary. Mm. It took me years to come around to understanding that, especially for women who are 19 years old, but maybe for everybody, being in a classroom where they're always worried about the teacher getting angry, even if not at them, at somebody else, if they can't really focus their brain on whatever it is they're studying. But when they feel comfortable and safe in that kind of environment, then they're willing. To, they're more willing to work together, to work on the topic and other things. And it's just like you were talking about the uh, putting the snacks and the water and the blanket inside the cage. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a huge effect of our attitude on students. And we have the thing, well, I have to be scary, otherwise they won't do the homework. But well, people I, aren't aware of how much is being lost by scolding and getting angry and things like that. Here, here's something that I stumbled on, kind of on the same topic, because when we first started out this term, I guess teachers had an option where, um, before we went all online, we had an option where we could teach face-to-face or we could split the class in half where there's half the students or there was another option is the option that I took where I would do a bit of um, teaching in the beginning of class and then I'd assign them their task and they had to upload it by the end of class. And then I said, you can go anywhere on campus. Like I didn't want them to be in the room just for safety measures for oh, COVID, oh, right? Oh, oh. Yeah, and, I would, and, and so I would, I would say, here's, here's the task. This is what you need to do. If you have a question, send me a message or come back to the class. Just leave. Just go. Just go somewhere, anywhere. And I tell them all these places. Mm-hmm. And I felt it that there was an immediate gravity to not leave the classroom. Uh. We're, we're, like you're giving them freedom. You're saying, leave, go somewhere. And then and then people don't want to leave. And they say, no, no, no. Okay, all right, half of you leave. You must leave. And then I just I kind of just filed that in the back of my head that they're just not used to that. They're used to being forced what to do. Like you sit there, be quiet, whatever. It's like, no, 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 get up, leave. You know, come back if you have a question. And it, it was it was kind of an interesting thing. I, I could tell that the, the overriding preference was to stay in the classroom, which was odd. Well, do you think that I, was more because leaving the classroom to go do something just seems like too atypical, so kind of like a trap or something? Or do you I, think maybe, they wanted to stay together too? I have no idea. Because if I was in college and my teacher said that, I would I, – I, I don't know. I don't know how I would feel. I, I definitely think I, it would be a pattern interrupt where I would think, what's up with this teacher? Like, I think I would, I would be curious about it. I, yeah, I, and of course, we know in Japan, nobody wants to be the first person to stand up and walk towards the door. Uh, <laughs> There's that factor, too. That's true. Being, being the first one to start something. But probably if one person did, then others would take part. Yeah. But have, you, have you noticed this, though, too? I don't know if you've been teaching online and come back face-to-face or anything like that. I have. And other teachers I've talked to have said the same thing. That suddenly, when they went back face-to-face, attendance shot up from 50% or 70% or 90% as the average to 100%. Oh, I definitely noticed that. I definitely noticed that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is great. Or else our profession would die. If the opposite was true, can you imagine? <laughs> if we could do everything online, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm excited to go back to to face-to-face to, you know. Yeah, it's like even this article, you're, without the students, it doesn't mean anything. Like the, the whole idea of having the larger classroom is that students can – like I try to make activities – and you mentioned it in the paper sort of where there's a simple sort of Q&A and you have to go around and talk to everybody. You know, what's your favorite food yeah. or what? And then, then they have a chance to learn from each other. And yeah, teachers you know, have to think of techniques they can use to make students bond. And that's the first step to learning. It, it doesn't help to really just start with a lot of English training right from class number one. Instead, make sure your students are connected. Get them in the right learning brain state. And then you can do other things. Can I ask you a question on in yeah. your paper? This is something that I think about a lot, and you did mention it in the paper about how you allow for them, especially the first couple of weeks, to just casually chit-chat, even in Japanese, and yeah. create that rapport. 
Now, yeah. how do you, and you said that you were sort of opposed to that earlier on your career because you were kind of afraid of that. And I try to let the students build rapport, but then there's that fine line where you feel like either they're taking yes. advantage of you or they're wasting time yes. in class. Yes. yes. How do you manage this thing? Or is it not important to keep them on task? Like what is the, is there like a fine, is there like a line in the sand where you're like, okay, everyone, it's time to focus. Or do you just let them kind of go on in that uh, manner mm -hmm. until you feel, oh, you feel like, oh, three or four weeks into the term. Now I have the classroom where I want. Now I can sort of be a little bit more strict on, on, uh, off task behavior. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a great comment and a great question. And this take brings us to Harumi Kimura, one of our BrainSig members and just a, one of our authors and just a really brilliant woman at uh, Sendai up there with Mark Helgeson. And she did this research on something called civility, hmm. which is students talking in class when they're supposed to be doing some activity, speaking Japanese. Hmm. And when she looked at it, it was often... There was a student who had no confidence or no you know, social fears, and the student would kind of resist engaging with the partner. And she noticed these are high emotional intelligence students that start speaking to the person, are you okay? Can I help you? Trying to make them feel comfortable so they could get into the activity later. Mm. So she says... When you hear a couple students speaking Japanese, before you jump down on them, give them a little bit of time and maybe make sure, see what's going on. But then, too, there's always, you know, you don't want the class to be speaking Japanese the entire period for socializing. So somehow you have to get that balance going. And I, I think it's both monitoring, knowing how connected the students are from the beginning, and also giving them tasks where they have to produce something together. Well, how but, do yeah. you, how do you, I mean, you strike me as a very kind, kind hearted, sort of warm, gentle person. Isn't there a place at some point to, to get everyone in line though? Like, 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 like let's imagine you yeah. have put yeah. in that effort yeah. for three or four weeks and you have the class where you want it. Isn't that when you do have the opportunity to stand out as the person who's controlling the room and then they've built the rapport and now you yeah, have the yeah, ability yeah, to yeah. steer them? Like, is, is there something to that? I think so. It really depends. Again, it changes class to class. A smaller class of slightly more mature students say, okay, come on, guys, I gave you this uh, goal to achieve and I'll let you do it any way you want, but make sure that you're working on this task. And that might, if they're in a group speaking, maybe there's one person who just wants to talk about, you know, some sports event or something that'll kind of make everybody give everybody a rationale for, come on, we can, let's do this. Sort of support that kind of a, a way of thinking. Yeah. There's times I tell students, remember I asked you to do this, this part in English, you know, after five minutes when English time is finished, you can speak Japanese, but so, again, it's kind of an art. And I gave sort of the ideal situation when I talked about Harumi Kimura, but we all know the reality, too. And I think it's just a balance of being always angry and scolding versus looking like you don't care and letting everybody speak in whatever way they want. You have to find some kind of a middle ground. You know what I mean? Ha have you, you ever got the power over to the students? Have you ever got upset because you feel that a class was taking advantage of you? Um, I used to think they were taking advantage of me when I they begged me to let them. You know, a student would beg me to let them do something. They turn in a paper a week later, and they wouldn't and things. Now, I used to interpret that as being taken advantage of. I don't think that way anymore. I'm just thinking they're going to go in their sort of natural way and it has little to do with me other than, you know, more their reaction to me. People like you, so I, don't, I don't take, think that taking advantage. I remember one case, Ayumi. She'd missed one third of all the classes, which is the line for failure. 
and she missed one more. And I said, look, I'm supposed to fail you because you missed so many. So no, please, please, I really want to take this class and get this credit. I promise I'll come every class. I won't miss any more classes. And she came the next week. And she came the next week. And she missed the next two. I thought, oh, she really took advantage of me, didn't she? She broke her promise. But then, <laughs> that same week, I had to prepare a featured speaker presentation for JALT. Mm-hmm. And I had three days to work on. The first day I sat down, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't figure out why. It was, a, it was my field. I knew what to say. I just couldn't get my presentation together. And the second day, and the third day, too, until I realized... The last time I gave a featured speaker presentation, I was really embarrassed by one person in the audience who kept criticizing what I was saying during the presentation in front of everybody else. Hmm. And as soon as I realized that, I could sit down and prepare the presentation. I thought, that's Ayumi. She comes to class. She feels bad about herself or English. She feels bad about being late. So she spends a little bit extra time putting on her eyelashes and things and realizes it's too late to catch the train and thinks to herself, oh, I, I, I don't want to go and feels really bad about herself and doesn't come. And so that's not like taking advantage of me. That's her dealing with her own battles and trying to overcome something and not doing very well at it because she's only 18. People like you make me uncomfortable. <laughs> My wife says that too. Oh, never mind. <laughs> I mean, you, you, because I mean, you kind of highlight how far I need to go in be, in becoming a better person. So it's, it's always a little bit confronting. I, I've been, I've been terrible. I've thrown things against the wall. I've screamed at students. <laughs> um, there we go. All right. Now I'm feeling better. I kicked them out of class. <laughs> But the more I've been around, I found that's just that doesn't work. Yeah. You scold one student, you know, everybody feels bad. Now, can you let's let's expand on that point because you brought that up in the paper. That's a very interesting (laughs) point because I I actually I see what you're saying, and and again, maybe in five or ten years, I'll I, I can understand it more completely. Sometimes I look at it in the reverse way, and I guess I'm wrong. Where I feel like sometimes I want to make an example out of a student. And I guess it is kind of like the same way of looking at it, the same point. It's like, I want, wait a second, I'm just messing with my own head. Yeah, because I, oh, I guess I am agreeing with what you're saying. If, I, if I'm if i scolding one student, sometimes I'm telling the whole class, like, this is how it is, and, and don't do, do it this way. Um, I actually don't know what the question is. I think I just kind yeah, of okay. pulled my brain into is a pretzel. That, <laughs> isn't that okay sometimes? I know what you're going to say because I got the same question. And yes, that's why teaching, teaching English especially is not a science only, it's an art too. Mm. And knowing what's going on, what they're experiencing. Sometimes you got to put down the law a little bit, especially even in the beginning. I don't really believe in being super nice all, you know, the very first class necessarily. Sometimes a little bit of looking strict and then loosening up works better. But, but uh, yeah, sometimes you got to say, hey, this is what you're expected to do here. You know, so come on, let's do it. And I'm talking to you, but I'm talking to everybody. Please understand. That's what this class is here for. Another cool thing that you mentioned in the paper, which I've actually really started to understand recently, if someone is going to behave badly, and you, you just nailed it. Um, for example, if a student's always sleeping and, and trying to act cool, it's not, it's not an insult to you as a teacher. They're just trying to act cool to their friends. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. This is... Um the research on adolescence, they have this um, thing, this term I really like, super social sensitivity, Mm. where they're really aware of how people are seeing them. And teens will show off and do dumb things in front of each other. But then if you get them alone, they won't do the same kind of, won't exhibit the same kind of behavior. Right. So a lot of it's just kind of showing off to friends and things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. So, what are some tips to help create a collaborative, uh, supportive environment where students are supporting each other, maybe okay. independently from at a certain point where they are doing, they are taking on the ownership and, and supporting each other without your prompts or whatever. 
Okay. Uh, before that, though, could I just tell you some of the other factors that research has found about yes, please. having friends, how it helps students? Yeah. Galanis and Carmack in 2013 did this study, and they found that when students have friends in the class, they're more willing to participate. Hmm. They exhibit better behavior because their friends are watching. And their friends are kind of like models of good behavior, too. Of course, it can go the other way, as you just mentioned, with adolescents. They have greater willingness to help each other. If somebody doesn't get the homework assignment and then calls their friend, the friend's like, oh, here's how you do it. You want to turn on Zoom? I can show you. When they have friends, they have more support beyond the teacher. They're more willing to share learning with each other. Mm. Oh, this other class, this really interesting thing I heard. you got to listen to this. You know, just like we are at conferences. Mm. By comparison, this is from Junovin in 2019, students that don't have friends get lower grades, they're less engaged, they have worse attendance, poor working memory, mm. poor focus, and a decline in mental health. Wow. And the decline in mental health is nothing we think about. But there's this thing in Japan I call the dark year. Hmm. There's this one-year period for students in Japan in high school and college where the rates of depression triple. The normal rates of depression are about 5.6, having a depressive episode for a Japanese student. But they shoot up to 20% during this year and this one particular 12-month period. Is this and that's like, important because is it like six months before the entrance exam and six months after, or when's the year? Is exactly, it, it the last six months of high school mm. and the first six months of university when they're under pressure to pass entrance exams, then they arrive at this place where they don't know anybody, and they feel all kinds of other malaise, mm. and that's when students commit suicide, and that's the top cause of student death in Japan. And it's especially bad for women during this dark year, 30% of women students. That's one in three. Actually, it's 28. It's okay. Between one and three and one and four. 28.4% of women students had a depressive episode during that dark year. So it's pretty common. And we don't know about it. We don't think about it at all. Yeah, but that's that's, that's really interesting. I, that's, wow. I should I need to think about that more because I I was always noticing the the shift between students between their first and second year at university, where they become yeah. less yeah. eager to learn. But in some ways, with what you're saying, they're actually drifting more towards happiness. Yeah, they sort of like joined. They made friends. Yeah, joined a club. They sort of smoothed everything out. They're not as yearning to find. You know, friends or people talk to more other people. They sort of settled down exactly. And as for suicide, though, what do you think the two biggest factors of prevention are? Friendship. It's yeah, having a friend and a teacher who cared. Wow. It's so not the counseling centers. Only nineteen percent of suicides sought help from university counseling centers. It's us. So does that mean you, just you being there for them in a supportive way, or does that mean you actually directing them to a center? What does that mean exactly? Uh, just, well, we don't know how they got, I think it's the teacher that cares. Are you okay? Hmm. You see, you know, showing that you care about this, the learner and that you're aware that they're having problems and say, oh, if you're having, you want to just, you can turn this in late. It's okay with me. Just a, especially that was true in high school. Hmm. So I'm not quite sure what high school teachers do, but I think they're more willing to engage with the students, talk to families, and other things that we can't. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I try to, I try to make activities where students have a lot of time to talk to each other. Yeah. And try to give them space to, to make friends. And that was the hardest thing when we went back and we tried to go back to face to face before we went back online is where we just, we, we just couldn't do it. 
And yeah, I could tell, yeah, yeah. like you were saying, there's this desire to make friends and to reach out and make new connections. And, and it, it was almost like I, as teachers, our hands were tied. It's like, I want to make this activity, but I can't. So, uh, and it's hard. They, they're, they're shy. They're not going to like reach out and try to make a friend in, in the middle of class. Right. Like we have rules, like we can't get within six feet of you. Right. So yeah, like yeah, as a yeah. teacher, we say, oh, okay. After class, make sure you introduce yourself to the classmates. It doesn't work like that. Like yeah. we, we have to, we have to help them on that way to make so friends in the you, classroom. What kind of activities did you find is useful for them? Yeah. You can't expect the students to step out and suddenly try to make friends. They don't have that confidence and power yet. Right. But we can really engender that by the kind of activities we use. And could you tell me about the activities that you use that you found were so I successful at doing that? Like a simple Excel chart or something on Word where there's six simple questions on the top column. Uh, sorry, mm -hmm. the top row. And then the, the first column is like it just is one to 20. And what they have to do is I give them a certain amount of time, like 15 minutes, and they have to talk to 20 people. They have to write the mm -hmm. names down mm -hmm. and they have to fill in, they have to fill in the answers. And so that encourages mm -hmm. them to, 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 to go through these six questions. And I try to make it based somewhat, you know, somewhat tied into the whatever task or goals in the textbook, but it could be simple. It could be, you know, what's your favorite food? What's your favorite restaurant in Fukuoka? You know, where'd you go last week? Where'd you go last weekend or just anything? And it, and it's always standing up, stand up, move around, um, that kind of activity. And I find sometimes like I'll put, I'll always put a timer up on the board, but if I notice people are kind of getting into a conversation, you just, you can just kind of see like certain pockets form. And then maybe I don't give them any rules. I don't say you have to talk to two people or three people. I just say you have to talk to 20 people. You have to write their names that's, down. That's brilliant. Yeah. And then you'll see pockets forming. Like it's always awkward in the yeah. beginning. They'll stand up. It's always the girls and the boys will make some sort of circle. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and then you just kind of watch for a while, and then they're kind of there's always this one leader who's facilitating it, and then after I let them go through that awkward thing, I'll sort of say, "Okay, stand up, move around." Blah, blah, blah. I'll just I'll just kind of like you know throw a piece of dynamite in the center of the room, and then and then yeah. people start to interact, and like they'll they'll notice they're done talking, and there's that awkward thing where two people had stopped talking, and there's no one free, and then they'll see someone free, and then and then gradually, if I see there's some good atmosphere going. I'll just switch the, the screen off where people don't see the time. And then when I think it's time to move on, I'll say, oh, it's time. But they don't know which time, what time it is. I mean, that, that's, that's what I do. That's brilliant. It's, it's, you're making me jealous now. <laughs> oh, stop. That, that's brilliant. I mean, think about it for a student that's just moved to town that has no friends and feels like an imposter. They shouldn't really be a part of this university they got in on a Swiss end, but they're not that good. They don't feel that confident about English. They don't know anybody. And they're sharing their favorite restaurants or food. They like, Hey, I like that too. You know, our movies and things are making connections with 20 different people in this class with those kind of questions that you said. And that's the perfect thing to engender friendships. And I suppose if, you know, you and I have always looked at activities like that as a way to practice specific English so they can internalize it. Mm -hmm. But if we look at it from the social side, too, how could we expand on that to make it even better? Like uh, write, little, write a note to three of the people that you interviewed and tell them what they said that you really liked. Oh, I like that. And feel free to give them your email address or telephone number or anything else. Or... Make a um, a community page and put this on a, a you know the LMS or something like a, a bulletin board or something. Mm. Write about three people that you talked to that you thought were really interesting and tell everybody else about them. Of course, everybody's going to go there to see if their name appears or something <laughs> like that. But yes, what about sometimes yeah. you see them pulling out their phones and exchanging line info and then you're like, okay, now we're going, now we're doing something. Here. Now we're going, there you go. <laughs> but we could even accelerate that for students who are a little bit scared to do that by saying, okay, I want you to talk to this person again outside of class. So exchange your line information, whatever else you want to do for communication. You know, we can make this seem like an assignment to give them the courage 
to do something they might not be brave enough to do themselves, especially a, um, a strong introvert type student. Well, here's another one. How, how could you get, you said you had, I've noticed the same thing that you have. You say, okay, talk, ask 20 people these questions. They form little clusters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's really hard to get them to change partners because right. they're afraid to talk to somebody else or they're afraid to end, you know, like, I don't want to walk away from this person because we just became friends. I don't want to hurt their feelings. Mm-hmm. How could you make a way that students could talk to people they don't know for sure? And not cluster, and only for like a couple minutes at a time. Well, I guess uh, the only thing that I can think is I would list if you had a smaller class, you could definitely do it with the activity I'm talking about. Like you just one to 17, and then that way everyone has to talk to everybody. And that, uh-huh. Inclu- uh-huh. that, that uh-huh. includes the people they don't know as well. You would like hide, they don't know that that was your main goal. And they'd have to, and you, and you, and you'd lower the time, so then they're not going to linger on their friend too long. Well, I have this problem in my classes, business ego newmon with sixty students each. Mm, that's way first harder. year students. Yeah, how do you do that? There's a way. Teach me, sensei. <laughs> what is Dyadic the way? Circles. Wait, what's that? That's the old word. This old word for this thing. I don't know what people call it now. Dyadic circles. What's that was that? the original word in the research, I think, where you have like two circles of students facing each other, like one ring inside the other ring. Oh. And the outside ring and the inside ring, the partners talk to each other. Then you say change, and the outside ring shifts one person to the right. Ah. It doesn't work in circles very well, but it works in lines. So you have students come out into the aisles, and in my case, there's 10 students in a line facing 10 other students in a line. And I'll have three lines like that because I have 60 students. But those 10 versus 10, I give them some assignment, like six questions to ask each other, whatever. And after a couple minutes, I'll say, change. Mm. And one of the lines stays still, but the next line shifts one or two people to the right, and they do the same thing again. And that way they're bound to talk to people they might never have talked to otherwise. It's like speed dating. <laughs> That's it. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's what you do in speed dating, too. Oh, I'm too old for this kind of stuff. Do younger people even know what speed dating is? I think I think so. Doesn't everybody know what that is now? <laughs> I I don't know. That's that's yeah. fu- that's funny. Well, it's that's- something that it, it seems like it's disappeared though. I don't hear much about it anymore maybe corona is the savior like back in the day i mean you're a little bit older than i am did you see i in my generation we didn't have this did you have like singles bars where there was phones on the tables and no, you could you could call I've, I've never heard of that no because maybe i saw it in a movie somewhere i always thought that was a really cool idea so you have a group of if we're just talking about the singles situation you have a group of singles sitting at one table you have another group of singles sitting at another table right and then every table has uh, the, the number of the, the, the table one, table two, table three, table four. And if you look around and you see someone that you're attracted to, then you'd call that table and you could talk to them from across the room and see if there's some sort of like attraction going. Or uh, so that would so kind of, that could work. You don't have to walk up to them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah, that yeah. could kind of work in an English class <laughs> if you set it up in a certain way. It could be kind of fun. I, I don't know how I, I don't know if it's you know logistically possible, but well, I used to do that in my li- in the language labs, where you could make student pairs randomly. Mm-hmm. That was one of the features in the language lab. You know, everybody would be on headphones with microphones, and you could make random student pairs and then change the random. It's not quite the same as calling, though, is it? No, kind of, you're, you're like same. running the switchboard kind of thing. Yeah. But wasn't they couldn't choose who their partner was going to be, and I'd imagine that'd be pretty complicated. Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> um. Yeah. So I mean, so, I th- oh, sorry. Go ahead. So the dyadic pairs. Mm-hmm. I had this experience. I wrote this up in another article for a the Korean Teaching English Connection. I teach this 
fairly boring course of business English with these 60 students. And every week is pretty much the same kind of thing. They have to read a story, listen to some uh, podcasts, and take a quiz. And then we do the speaking activities. But there's this one week where there's this... I'm sorry, I also do what are called community cards. I give each student a little piece of paper at the end of class to write anything down they want about class, about their personal life, you know, next week's my birthday, or I didn't sleep last night, whatever. To give it to me at the end of class, this little community card. And there's this one class where a huge number of the students, like 60% were writing, today's class was really good. Hmm. And it's not usually the kind of thing they write. It's more like, Oh, there's too much homework <laughs> uh, <I'm> <laughs> or something hungry. outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love you. It's always <laughs> boys that write that. <laughs> they're worried about, they're worried about passing, I think. Right. But, but, uh, this one class today was a really good class and the reading was a little bit less interesting than usual. And I couldn't figure out what was different till I realized Instead of doing like one set of dyadic lines where they interacted with maybe four people, I did that three times during this class. So everybody talked to nine or ten other people they'd never talked to before. Hmm. And I think I'm pretty sure that's why that particular class they thought was especially good. And I never would have realized that if it weren't for the community cards. I never would, you know. Th- if I hadn't noticed that, it's not something that's obvious to the teacher, but wow. Then since I was into the social brain and the connected classroom, that really jumped out for me as being important. And I would have missed it any other time in my life. Well, the article is S2S, the connected classroom, and I will put the link in the show notes. Did we hit everything, Dr. Kelly? Did we miss anything? I think we did. I think we got it all. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, John. Thank you very much. Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com, where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five-minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.